So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've started a Sunday teaching series in the book of Acts. Acts is written by the gospel writer Luke, and it's his sequel to the teaching life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He basically rolls on through into another book and outlines the exciting explosion of the early Christian church. And the week one, we spoke about the need for the disciples to understand how important the resurrection is to their faith. And so Jesus essentially comes back, he rises from the dead, and he appears to the disciples many different times, on many different occasions, to basically give them proof that he had come back from the dead. It was like a cornerstone, a touch point, that all of the disciples could continually look back to, so as to see that their faith has this solid foundation of Jesus rising from the dead. And then last week... We looked at the time where the disciples were filled for the first time with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and all that that meant for them in order for them to be able to carry out the mission for which God has called them to do. So Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but before you do that, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit because you're only going to be able to do it if you're filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And then this week, we get to a passage that probably is a number of days or weeks later after the event in Pentecost, and it outlines what the early church essentially did with their time. So when Peter, after they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, got up and he preached this amazing sermon, it says that 3,000 people became Christians. Very quickly, they probably had to put a bit of structure in place so as to start to have a church and meet together daily to worship and to do what they felt like Jesus was calling them to do. And so this little passage here is outlining what they did in that time, what they spent their time doing. So what do we have with this passage? Well, it's a particularly exciting account of what it looked like to be part of the early church. In fact, it's so exciting that some people over the years have mistakenly taken this description of the early church to be almost like a blueprint for what a real biblical church should actually look like. So if we really want to be a proper church, then we need to sell all our possessions, we need to sell our houses and set up tents and actually kind of have everything in common. Well, thankfully, you'll be glad to know, to read the book of Acts in that way would actually be a mistake. And it's a mistake primarily because the book of Acts is a book of narrative. So as you read the Bible, you'll find that there's loads of different genres of writing in the Bible. There are moments where it's like didactive teaching, so mostly in Paul's letters, where Paul is saying, this is what you need to do in order to actually fulfill what it means to be church, what it means to be a Christian. But there's also stories in the Bible, lots of it in the Old Testament, of narrative, which is long segments of just essentially outlining the history of God's people and God's interaction with his people people on earth and it's in the narrative bit sections of scripture that we need to be really careful that we don't make it into law we don't look at it and say actually just because they did that then that's exactly what we need to do now because what people the people of the bible who wrote the sections of narrative are actually doing is they're just describing what happened rather than what should happen And so if we were to extrapolate that, lots of different didactive laws and rules so as to be a church, it would be a huge mistake, particularly if you read narrative in the Old Testament. We get ourselves in an awful mess. However, Acts does form part of the Bible, so it's divinely inspired, and so it does have a direct bearing on our life. And it's really important to realize that when we're reading any part of narrative, God will still speak to us through that narrative. 
In fact, many theologians would agree that the book of Acts, and particularly this description of the early church, does have some of what they refer to as pattern value, which essentially means there's some really important ingredients that we need to take note of here, so as to ensure that we ourselves in 21st century expression of Christianity can have as an exciting time as the early church obviously had. So, seen as it's the season of the barbecue. I'm going to ask us to try and imagine this description of the formation of the early church as a little bit like the making of an incredibly tasty sausage. There's many variants when it comes to sausage. We've got Cumberland, we've got Lincolnshire, salami, pepperoni, lots of different expressions of sausage, but there's some key ingredients that are part of every sausage in order to make them actual sausages. So what are the ingredients of a good church sausage? Well, firstly, verse 42. He says that the early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Let's think of this as the meat. Most likely, what is the teaching of the apostles? Most likely, this would have been Jesus' earthly teaching. So these disciples, they would have spent three years following Jesus around, hearing everything Jesus had to say. And so therefore, their job, the apostles, was to basically pass on that teaching to the early church. But it would have also contained a lot of the teaching that Jesus would have given them post-resurrection before he ascended to heaven. And so when they came back, essentially, if you read the Gospels, what you realize quite quickly is the disciples didn't have a clue what Jesus' death meant. They didn't really have a concept of resurrection. So when Jesus came back from the dead and he was with them for 40 days, he was explaining to them what his death actually meant, all that it meant for the people of God, but also what the resurrection meant and the importance of that. And so the apostles' teaching is all of Jesus' earthly teaching and all of that teaching about his death and resurrection as well. And so the first thing for us to notice about the early church is that despite having had what must have been one of the most incredible experiences of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they didn't simply descend into a mystical trance of repetitive spiritual experiences. Their encounter with the Holy Spirit didn't require them to despise their minds and to reject any idea of rational thought or theology. Instead, we're told that actually the Spirit of God led them to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So therefore, we probably have to conclude that anti-intellectualism is incompatible with an experience of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit elsewhere in the New Testament is described as the Spirit of truth. Now, truth particularly amongst the millennials in the room, is a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? In this relativist age of what's good for you is good for you, most Christians, and to be honest, most non, well, most non-Christians, sorry, and to be honest, most Christians tend to treat the idea of any kind of absolute claim to truth as offensive and probably incompatible with any notions of liberty and freedom. But the problem is to think of Christianity in that way is to totally misunderstand what Christian truth is all about. Because truth for Christians isn't a theology. It's not a collection of rational ideas. For Christians, truth is a person. And Christians believe that our relationship with the person of Jesus is how we can find true freedom. Jesus says this about truth in his Gospels. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then, he says, you will know the truth, and the truth won't constrain you. It won't imprison you. It won't make you miserable. It won't kill all the joy out of life. Instead, Jesus says, my truth, his truth, himself, and relationship with him will set us free. Here's the point. 
if we really want to be free, not the kind of free that post-modernity sells us. That's actually not freedom at all. That's just imprisoning ourselves to our own emotions and experiences. If we really want to be free, the kind of free where we can be truly at ease in our own skin, where we can enjoy life in all its fullness, the Christian claim is that truth is a, is a person. And as we come into relationship with the person of Jesus, we then become who we're created to be and we're really free. It's how we get life in all its fullness. So, Key sausage ingredient number one. You thought I'd forgotten about the sausage. The church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. What does that look like here at St. Peter's? Well, obviously, we don't have the apostles knocking around in London. If we did, they'd probably be past their prime. But thankfully, the early church foresaw this slight glitch in the explosion of the biggest movement in the history of mankind. And in the absence of podcasts and the internet and YouTube, they decided they'd write it all down in a book, which we all have access to. This Bible is an incredible collection of the most important teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And can I say from personal experience, and probably from the experience of a lot of people in this room, if you read the Bible, it really will change your life. In it, we find out about the person of Jesus, but through it, we're transformed as we get to know the person of Jesus. Read it in your own time, read it in church, read it with each other. And what you'll find is you, as you get into it, it's almost like it feels strangely alive. It's like when you really need God to speak to you at the most important time, when you're really struggling, the Bible just cuts through all of the nonsense and speaks straight to us. I remember when um, I first found out that Hanel was pregnant with our eldest, Elia. And we weren't actually planning to have a baby. Um, we weren't very good at planning in general, but we weren't planning. And so when Hanel was showing all the signs of early pregnancy, I started to panic. In fact, I really panicked. And I was cycling into college. I was studying at the time. And my whole cycle ride in was about half an hour. And I spent the whole time panicking about the fact that my whole life was about to change and that I'd have to be a dad and all that that means on everything. And my panic was justified, to be fair. Now I've got kids, but that's not the point. And as I was cycling into college... Just this, basically, Ephesians 6.4 popped into my mind. Now, I'm not in the kind of habit of remembering Bible verses. I don't remember hardly any. But um, it just felt like God says, read Ephesians 6.4. Didn't know what it was. Got into college, opened my Bible, went to Ephesians 6.4. And Ephesians 6.4, if you know it, is essentially an instruction to dads on how they should raise their children to love God. And it cut through all of the panic and comforted me at the time I needed the most amount of comfort. If we decide that we're gonna read the Bible on a daily basis, it will absolutely transform our lives. Why? Not because the Bible's particularly uh, special, it's because in it we have a collection of the closest sources of the person of truth, in whom if we have a relationship, we have freedom in life and we find fullness of life. So there's so many resources out there to help us understand the Bible. If you're not used to reading the Bible, do not start at the beginning. Start in the Gospels. It's much easier to understand. You can go back to the beginning later. If you've been reading the Bible for a long, long time, don't get taken in by the lie that deeper teaching is lots more information or some new fancy theology of the Bible. It's absolute nonsense. Some of the simplest teaching in the Bible is the deepest teaching we could ever possibly hear. So Jesus basically says the most important bit of teaching in the Bible is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Actually, very simple. Like We could probably all begin to understand what that means. The problem isn't understanding it or receiving it. The problem is actually doing it and allowing the Spirit to fill us so that we're able to do it. 
Deep teaching essentially is any teaching that contains the truth of Jesus. And the whole point of teaching should be that it helps us apply it to our lives and then actually do it because it's about doing it rather than just hearing it. So, ingredient number one, teaching the Bible. Ingredient number two, participating in Christian community. Luke tells us in verse 42, the early church devoted themselves not only to teaching, but also to Christian fellowship and to what Luke refers to as the breaking of bread. So first, let's deal with what breaking of bread means. And this was probably both communion and a larger, what they called a fellowship meal, where they would gather together and they would feast together and they would remind themselves of all that Jesus has done in their lives and they would tell stories of all the things that Jesus was at work doing in their lives and they would celebrate together and encourage each other. And so when we take communion, it's not about just repeating some sort of ceremony as though we're supposed to do this in order to receive the grace of God. That's absolute nonsense. The point of taking communion is that we're looking back at all that Jesus has done for us and we're expecting him to come right now and fill us with his presence because of what he's done on the cross. And then also we're looking forward to when Christ will turn, come back again and we'll experience the fullness of his presence on earth. So the breaking of bread for the early church was really actually about community. They'd share faith-building stories together, they'd remember what Jesus had done and they'd encourage and celebrate with each other. So what does Luke mean by fellowship? Well, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which means to participate in community. So a key ingredient in any exciting expression of church is a community of people where everybody participates. Now, a common mistake people make with this word fellowship is to read it in the context of verse 44, which is that scary bit where it talks about selling our houses and having everything in common. And we reduce fellowship down to simply being about selling our possessions and living in a commune. And this is actually wrong. And it's wrong partly because of that pattern value thing that I talked about. It's not as though this is didactive teaching saying that this is what you need to do in order to be a church. And you can see this as you read on in the book of Acts. Firstly, in Acts, giving financially or otherwise in the early church community was totally voluntary. We read about it in Acts all the time. They weren't compelled to sell their house because of rules imposed by the apostles. Secondly, clearly they didn't all sell their houses because in the next verse it tells us that they met in their homes to worship. If they sold them, they wouldn't have a home to meet in. Thirdly, later in Acts we learn that the apostles explicitly state that those in the church were under no obligation to sell their possessions. And finally, the tense used there in verse 45 of our passage is imperfect, which all it means is that it was an occasional occurrence in response to a need in their community. So we can all let ourselves off the hook. But the point here is that when Luke says they devoted themselves to fellowship, he's referring to something much deeper and wider than selling possessions and giving to those in need. Those actions were actually just outward expressions of the heartbeat of the church, which is essentially that we all participate together. That means that when we come to church, we're all bringing ourselves and our own gifts and our own expressions of what it means to be a Christian and gifts and leadership qualities into the church and blessing each other. I think we're at a point now at St. Peter's where this is becoming increasingly important. 
I think we've probably grown to the size where it's not possible to do everything that needs to be done by just a few staff members or by just a couple of leaders in the church. I think St. Peter's now needs to become a true expression of church, which is where we all participate and we all bring our own gifts and we're able to actually function as the body of the church. And when I say participating in the church together, I'm actually not talking about serving coffee. I'm not talking about being on the welcome team. I'm not talking about being lyrics, although we need all those things to function as a church and to be able to do what we do here. Sunday morning, I'm talking about you bringing the, the gifts that God has given you to the church so it can bless the whole. And so essentially what we really need in this church is we need the pastors to start to identify themselves. Because Hanel and I and Chris and Sarah, we can't deal with all the pastoral needs in our community right now. There's too many of us. It can't be done by two or four people. We need other people in the church who would consider themselves to be gifted in the pastoral ministry to actually start identifying themselves and start meeting the need in the community. In the same way, we need the prophets to rise up and start sending... There's someone called Ajoma who's actually not here at the moment, but she's constantly sending me emails saying, this is what I feel like the Lord's saying for our church. We need the prophets among us to start functioning so that it can bless the body as a whole and to start functioning by saying, this is what I feel like God is saying and doing. We need the evangelists to start doing their work, which doesn't mean you just bring non-Christians to church so that we evangelize them for you. It means that you're out there doing the work of the evangelists and introducing people to Jesus. We need those among us who are really good at teaching to start teaching those younger in the faith about the Bible and about what it means to be a Christian, how to read the Bible and how to grow in maturity and faith. And we need the apostles to start being out there and seeing some crazy miracles happen. We need more healing to be happening on the streets. We need more people to be coming in contact with the Holy Spirit out there so that when they come in here, it's just an expression of what we've seen spill out of the church building. When I talk about participation in the church, it is not just about serving in practical ways, although that is part of it. It's about serving in spiritual ways so that we're all involved. So how can we participate here at St. Peter's? Firstly, we can come ready to worship. And I think this is one of the hardest things because when we come on Sunday morning, so often our mind is in a totally other place and we're not able to engage in worship. We're thinking about the chaos of getting the kids into the car to get here. We're thinking about the chaos of our week. We shut down because we just had Saturday. As we come into church, the last thing we're probably thinking about, if you're anything like me, those of you who are thinking about God, you're better than me. You're coming in and you're thinking about everything else, but often it takes a few songs to get into worship. I often think the longer the worship session, the better, because it takes our brain and our heart a long time to engage in worshipping God. And so what we could do as a church is we could choose to participate by preparing ourselves for worship before we even get here. That means the short amount of time that we have because of kids' ministry and stuff like that and the fact that we don't all want to be here for three hours, it means that we can go straight into the presence of God so that we're not waiting around. How else can you participate? You can be open to hearing God's voice. So when we have the section where we share prophecy, you can actually try and hear for God for yourself and then share it with the church. And I'll be talking more about that over the coming weeks. We can also pray for people after the service. So when we do ministry up here, you can come up and lay a hand on somebody else in the body and bless them, bless what God's already doing. This is why we're doing ministry training on June the 9th. If you can, please come for those three weeks because actually what you'll realize is what we do at the front when we pray for people is mind-numbingly simple. All we're trying to do is we're trying to follow what the Spirit's already doing. It's not about us and our fancy prayers. It's about the activity of the Spirit and just blessing what God's already at work doing among us. It means that we can choose to be vulnerable with each other. We talk about this a lot here. 
It means that if we're really going to start functioning as a family, then part of participating in the family is being vulnerable, which is the hardest thing to do in any community. In fact, it's incredibly difficult, particularly in London. And as we choose to be vulnerable with each other, we also need to choose to forgive really quickly and really freely, to hold short accounts, to actually have the kind of relationship where we can say to each other, when you did this, this is how it made me feel. And I just want to say that actually, I forgive you for that. And then they can actually have a reconciliation so we can actually go on being vulnerable with each other as opposed to shutting down and essentially not having any depth of relationship whatsoever. It means that we can get to know each other's gifts and dreams and encourage them out of each other. As we're getting to know each other on a deeper level, we'll start to notice what each other's good at. It means that there will be no culture of comparison here at St. Peter's, but instead what we do is when we spot a gift or a talent in someone else, we call it out and then we say, you're really good at this. I've noticed that you're amazing at caring for people in a pastoral way. I just want to say that I really feel like that's a gift of God and I'd love to start you see, see you doing it more in church. Or I've noticed that you um, are incredible in worship that you go for it from the get-go, unlike Ben. And you're amazing at just getting straight into the presence of God. And I just think that's a real gift for our community because it inspires us all to get going as we worship God. So if you're here and you're a Christian and you consider yourself as a part of this church, this is your church family, here's a question you can ask yourself this morning. How am I participating? Not serving coffee, not although we do need that, although I'm sure the coffee could sort itself out, not doing lyrics, how am I actually participating? How am I giving myself in a new, unique way to the body so that we can become mature and be built up? Participation is important because one of the ingredients you sometimes find in churches, particularly in London, is a consumeristic culture particularly as we grow, that we arrive and we get fed from the stage, someone who's being paid to do it, and it just all gets done for us and we just need to arrive and engage. And to be honest, I can see the attraction in that because it's absolutely knackering in the week. London is relentless. Our jobs are relentless. It just keeps hammering us again and again. And so to have Sunday where you can just come and relax and receive is really good. And there will be times in your Christian walk where you will need that and it's really important. But in the other times, what we need to do is encourage each other not to be passive. So that when we're coming, we're actually participating in what God's doing. And there's obvious exceptions to this. It's really important to say this. If you're not yet a Christian, then you're here on your own terms. You do not need to participate at all. You can just observe and get to know what's going on and check things out. If you've experienced terrible trauma as a part of being a part of a previous church, so you've ex experienced church pain, you are not encouraged. You don't need to get involved here. You can just come here on your own terms and receive the healing that you need in order to be able to become and continue your ministry. If you've literally just become a Christian, you also don't need to jump in and get straight away involved. In fact, if you've just become a Christian, I would say just do the life course so that you can get those basics in place so that you can go on into what you're called to do in the church. But for the rest of us, the challenge is how are you participating? What are you bringing? What gifts do you have and what can you bring to the church so that we grow up into maturity? So key ingredients of a tasty church, firstly, the meat, which is the teaching. Secondly, um, what I like to think of as the spice of the sausage, a community where everyone participates. And then final ingredient, if you want a really good church sausage, the kind of sausage that when you bite into it, like oil just spurts out, we need to give it a very healthy dose of worship and prayer. So in verse 42, the church, it says that the church devoted themselves to prayer. And then in verse 46, every day they met in the temple and in their homes and they praised God. 
I had a bit of a revelation the other day. I went to a um, church leadership conference, which was brilliant. And um, it was in town, and a lot of the emphasis at the conference was on how you can set up structures and strategy to grow a mega church, to grow a really big church. And it was really interesting, and there's some brilliant speakers there. But what struck me whilst I was there was that a lot of what we do as church can be done on a completely human level. I actually think the growth that we've seen in this church, obviously it's amazing, and obviously it's because of God, but also, to be honest, a lot of it's been human. I would say that a lot of people have started coming because there's not really an Anglican expression of charismatic church in this area, in the southeast. That's certainly why a lot of our people from St. Mary's and KXC have started coming. Probably we value the leadership of women and therefore it's been a natural kind of progression for people who want a church that enables women to live out their giftings, particularly in speaking and leading on stage as well. And so therefore it doesn't really surprise me that we've grown so fast as a church. But what we need to keep holding on to is it's not about growth in numbers. It's not about growing what we really need in church is we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the only way we're ever going to get that is if we commit to praying together there was a guy at the leadership conference who's Catholic actually who's brilliant and he it was in a seminar I was in and he said the thing about prayer is prayer isn't everything but everything without prayer is nothing which I thought was brilliant it sums it up prayer isn't everything if we spent our whole time praying we wouldn't do anything but all the activity that we do in church, all the stuff, the busyness, the things we do to occupy our time, it's absolutely nothing without prayer. And so I think this is a time for us as a church to really start investing in the prayer life of the church. That means basically coming to the prayer meeting. So Wednesday night, if you've not been, 7.30 to 8.30, and Caroline and Phil are militant about keeping it to an hour, which I really appreciate, 7.30 to 8.30, come and pray. And when we pray, all we do is we pray for more of the kingdom of God. So we're not doing a shopping list prayer. We don't write up all the practical needs of the church and then start knocking them off. We just follow the Spirit and pray as led by the Spirit. If you want to learn how to pray, that's a brilliant place to come and pray. The, the bar is really low. You don't need to say anything. You can just come along and learn how to pray because Caroline and Phil really can pray and you'll learn lots from them. I mean, they really can pray. And we've also got some brilliant people who come to that prayer meeting week in, week out. And the, I won't name you but they know who they are essentially it's people who used to be church leaders and it it fascinates me that the prayer meeting is full of ex-church leaders and the reason it's full of ex-church leaders is because if there's one thing a church leader knows it's that without prayer all the stuff we do is nothing it is the most important thing we can engage in Another way you can engage in prayer at St. Peter's is come to the pre-service prayer meeting, which actually is beginning to get a life of its own, and it's really good fun. What we do is we gather at, is it quarter to two, Chris? Quarter to ten every week in that room, and we ask God for words and pictures of what's about to happen in the service, and we pray for the elements of the service, and we worship for a bit. It's brilliant. So why don't you try coming early, quarter to ten, and we're all in there, and we're just praying for the service. It's really good for us to commit to praying. Prayer isn't everything, but without prayer, everything is nothing. So what about worship? Well, we've talked about this a lot, but the thing about worship is, obviously, we worship God because he's worthy of our praise. So we worship God because he's worth our worship. But the amazing thing about Christian worship is this concept of grace, which essentially means you can't outgive God. So as you give yourself to God in worship and in praise because of what he's done, because of who he is, you cannot outgive God. And the amazing thing about Christian worship is as we do that, we start to receive back from him in worship. 
And so for us, worship obviously is about the discipline of coming to God and thanking him for who he is and for all that he's done. But the amazing thing about worship is we come expectant that he's then going to start filling us with his Holy Spirit. That as we worship, we become transformed into the likeness of Christ. Because the truth about worship is as you worship something or someone, you are giving that something or someone the uh, power to ascribe worth. So essentially, your worthiness comes from that thing that you worship. So if you worship money, but you have no money, you feel worthless. If you worship sex and you're not having sex, you're not in the kind of relationship of that way, you feel absolutely worthless. If you worship power and you're frustrated because basically you don't have the power that you need, you constantly want more, you feel absolutely worthless if you don't have it. If you worship God, he will never ever disappoint you in the same way those other things do and he will always fill you back with your Holy Spirit so that you then become the people you're created to be, sons and daughters of the living God. And so worship here at St. Peter's, it's not a formula, but what we've noticed is it takes us a bit of time to get into the presence of God. And so the model we use here at St. Peter's is we tend to start with some praise and thanksgiving songs. So fairly objective, fairly low level, tend to be about all that God's done, or his characteristics, his attributes. Then what we've noticed is as we start to worship God for who he is and we remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done, we start to become painfully aware of who we are not. And so that's when we start to engage in the concept of grace and of forgiveness. And it's in those songs that we start to sing songs about the cross. And then from that place, we go to what the Bible refers to as the most holy place, which is essentially the presence of God itself. And it's only then that we're able to go into the presence of God and receive what we really need, which is the affirmation of our Father in heaven. See, the thing about church is if we just did community, Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be exhausted pretty quickly and we'd get burnt out and we'd get hurt. If we just received teaching and tried to do what Jesus said we should do in the Bible, we'll become pretty legalistic and in the end we'll get burnt out and we won't be able to function anymore. It's only when we allow the Holy Spirit to fuel everything that we do that we're able to be the church that God has called us to be. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to pray.